0: Welcome to Mad Dogs and Englishmen, an inflation-themed podcast. The price inflation, inflated claims about gun control, and uh, perhaps inflated reputations of various police departments. Um, which do you want to start with, Charlie?
1: Maybe we'll start with the police.
0: Do you want to? Okay, I thought you'd, I thought you'd save that for the end. Let's go ahead. Let's do it.
1: Well, whatever else happened in Uvalde, it does seem that the police failed spectacularly.
0: Yeah. Uh, Charlie, that's that's Uvalde. Uvalde. Yeah. Yeah, this story keeps getting uh, worse, I suppose. Um, you know, at first we heard there had been some sort of confrontation with uh, an officer that never happened and then exchange of fire i guess which also didn't happen and um the current story we're getting and i was really perplexed by this was that the commanding officer on the scene decided that as they keep putting it the situation had transitioned from an active shooter situation to a barricaded hostage taker situation and um I heard on a radio interview the day, someone asked the, um, I guess he was the police superintendent there, well, what was this determination based on? And he just kept repeating himself, well, it was based on the determination of the officer at the scene. Well, yes, but what was the officer at the scene determining his determination uh, from? And there never seems to have been any particular answer from that. Um As you noted on the editor's uh, podcast yesterday, this is not only um, contrary to what we would reasonably, I think, expect police officers to do. It's also contrary to decades now of standing uh, police guidelines about how to respond to an active shooter situation. And like, you know, page one is (laughs) do not assume this guy is going to turn into a hostage taker because once they start shooting people in school, it's what they're going to do. And the directive, always and everywhere, is engage until you have uh, neutralized the shooter. And that is not what happened here. They seem to have um, ignored those guidelines. You know, this is one of those things where um, you want to say, you know, I don't carry a badge and a gun. I don't have to go put my life on the line for uh, public safety and that sort of thing. But this is what you signed up for. You know, when you took an oath and we gave you a badge and a gun and we cut you a great deal of leeway, um, including some formal legal protections for how you do your job, the flip side of that is when something like this happens, you have to be the one who goes and kicks the door down and takes the guy out, even if it means putting yourself at Mortal risk—that is, that's what you signed up for. I mean, sort of a lesser version of this. Is every now and then you hear a politician complaining about you know how hard the job is or something, particularly a president, and you have to tell them you asked for this job. <laughs> you know, you went out there and begged for this job. Um, police officers don't end up police officers by by accident. This is something they've agreed to and sworn an oath to do, and it looks like the folks in Uvalde have not only failed but failed in some gross, and dishonorable way.
1: I think that beyond their training, the case that this was a, one big catastrophic fatal misunderstanding is weakened by the fact, the
0: fact that, that... you could hear gunshots going off?
1: Yeah, and that both the parents, and by all accounts the Border Patrol agents who showed up, kept saying to them, shouldn't we go in? I mean, we've all been in a situation in which people have often uh, in, in entirely benign circumstances, completely misunderstood what was going on and therefore made bad decisions. Yeah, You understand how that could happen, but it seems to me that the police were not caught up in unchallenged groupthink here because the parents and bystanders and other law enforcement dissented. That's the part that I find so baffling. Not only did they violate the established rules, but they overruled the perceptions of of other people. And if you listen to the editors, uh, you will have heard me say to Jim that this is why among many other reasons, I have always instinctively drawn a distinction between the police and the idea of a good guy with a gun. Yeah, It's not that I don't think most police officers are good. It's that the case for private gun ownership and the case for police are discreet. The case for private gun ownership is that You may find yourself as a private citizen in a situation in which you need to defend your life with force, and there are no police around, either in most cases because they can't be everywhere at once, and in some cases because they don't want to do anything about it. The case for police is that we should have an auxiliary force that sits atop the citizenry, which is presumed to be armed and also responsible for its own security, which is uncontroversial outside of the debate over arms as is evidenced by the fact we put locks on doors so this is a good example of of that two-tier system and yet in this case i'm afraid it seems as if the parents had a better grasp of what was going on than did the the police and you know i, I don't want to extrapolate that out to police in general i'm not making a case against police i'm not even saying that this makes me skeptical of police. I'm not saying any of that. But I am saying that, that this police department and this county needs to answer some questions, because you know, the way that our society has increasingly been set up is that the first line of defense is presumed to be the police, and anything after that is gravy. But And you do wonder...
0: Yeah. One thing about this story I think that also needs some correcting is um, a lot of the reporting seems to imply that Uvalde is um, some tiny, remote um, little place that is, you know, sort of cut off from, uh, uh, you know, urban life and the sort of expectations that that go along with that. Uvalde is not a very big town, but it's essentially an exurb of San Antonio. Uh, you know, Uvalde is about an hour and 20 minutes, I guess, drive from uh, from downtown San Antonio. So it's probably as close to uh, San Antonio as, I don't know, as Poughkeepsie is to New York City. Uh, maybe a little bit further than New Haven is from New York, something like that. So we're not talking about some place that's out in the wilderness in the, in the middle of nowhere. It's, um, you know, part of a uh, great big urban sprawl in, uh, in that part of the state. These aren't some, you know, this isn't, you know, Andy Griffith in and Mayberry, um, some little bitty police force that doesn't know what to do and doesn't have any resources or that sort of thing. I mean, yeah, it's not a very big police force in terms of the number of officers in the town, because it's not that big a town, but it's not, um, you know, some remote isolated country, uh, place, you know, it's not Alpine, Texas or someplace like that. You know, it's not, uh, Oh, what's a good middle of nowhere? Well, where I'm from it's kind of middle of nowhere, but um, uh, you know, it's um, our expectations, I think, should be probably higher for um for a place like that. In some ways, that it's not a, a super under resourced uh, kind of area, but irrespective of that, you know, this is um, a phenomenon that's now familiar enough; it's happened in enough places. Um and tends not to be strictly a big city thing. Um, you know, it tends to be more of a suburban, exurban kind of thing that you would expect police to be ready for it. And indeed, I guess the um, chief of police there had recently been to uh, an active shooter training seminar uh, or read in the newspaper. So it really is um, mysterious.
1: Uh, so with apologies to you and anyone else who listens to the editor's, I think it is worth reiterating here, what I said there, which is that once you become a police officer and swear an oath, you have a different set of responsibilities than those people who didn't. I think everyone has a moral responsibility to help if they see this sort of crime or really most crimes unfolding. But the people who have said, and sure, they've been few and far between, but they've often been influential. Well, how would you have responded? I don't know but I didn't sign up to be a police officer. I don't know how I would have responded if I had enlisted in the army. I don't know how I would have responded if I'd been a firefighter on 9-11. Um, but if I had taken that oath, I would have had a responsibility to answer that question. Uh, you know, yeah. it, it's, I just think that is that is really simple. If you make a promise to do this, you do it.
0: Yeah, um, And they didn't And in some ways having people there Who have promised to do this and fail to do it is, is worse, leaves us worse off Than never having people there who promised to do it in the first place Because yes. you know if you think you can rely on the police You don't make provisions uh, Yourself or at least you don't um, Go as far in making provisions For your own defense because you think well we've got police Around to, uh, to do this stuff For us and I think we, we increasingly like
1: struggle As a society with this Kevin What do you mean? Uh, Well, when Joe Biden issued his illegal executive order extending the moratorium on evictions, having Mm -hmm. said he knew that he couldn't do it, having been told by the Supreme Court that he wasn't allowed to do it, The Nation ran a piece by Eli Mistal in which he said, this is civil disobedience. (laughs) No, not when you're the President of the United (laughs) States. It's not.
0: Oh, that's beautiful. Civil disobedience from the President of the United States of America. That's, um, good Lord. Yeah, as the, uh, as the famous criminal philosopher when Duffy put it, the police are a janitorial service that cleans up your blood after someone murders you. I think that's a very cynical way to think of it, but often that seems to be um, closer to the truth than we'd like it to be.
1: Sure, and of course that often describes the role of the police through no fault of their own. Which is sure. they call to your be house to prevent stuff. Yeah. This is worse. I mean, if if I am killed by a home intruder and then the police show up, there was no expectation, nor should there be, that they would be at my house at two in the morning. No. But here they were there. I think that's what's driving people so crazy. Kids were calling them on the phone. So I think there has to be a reckoning here. And I think it would be a good thing if as a culture we reiterated our expectation that people who have taken oaths uphold
0: them. Yeah. That is true. Um, So that's what you were getting at with the Biden stuff was, was keeping oaths.
1: He took an oath. Yeah.
0: Look, I
1: have sympathy... For people who say, for example, that they would find it very difficult to issue an order that would kill people. True. Sure. Then don't become the president of the United States, because you're going to have to, directly or indirectly. Yeah. I find it understandable that there are people out there who say, you know, I wouldn't be able to uphold a law that I oppose. Okay, then don't become a governor. Yeah. You can't a become cop. a governor or a president or a cop and then pick and choose the laws. I can pick and choose the laws as a private citizen. Now, of course, I have to deal with the consequences. That's part of civil disobedience too. But I have broken no great oath as a private citizen. Well, actually, funnily enough, I sort of would have because I took an oath to... Become a citizen. Yeah, you can break <laughs> the law and and have violated no, no oath. There's this myth of the social contract, of course. You didn't sign that. You were born here. I've said this before in my argument with David French over whether one should be more or less grateful as an immigrant than citizens are. And David said there should be no difference. And I think the opposite is true. I think immigrants should be more grateful and more law-abiding because they have explicitly chosen to move here and then taken an oath. Whereas if you're born here and you just hate it and you hate all the laws and you think it's terrible, I have some sympathy for you. I do think we have to enforce the law or we break down as a society. But a a private citizen saying, you know what, I hate all this and I'm just not going to abide by it, that's one thing. The president, a governor, a cop, you can't do it.
0: Yeah. You know, unless there's more to this story that we find out later that looks mitigatory, um, these guys are going to have to move and change their names. Yes. You know, it's going to be... um, the the blowback is going to be vicious probably dangerous
1: yeah i hope not dangerous but potentially
0: not. i hope not too but if the um story is as it appears to be they should all be fired
1: they should everyone be who fired
0: was, everyone who was on the scene not just the commanding officer they should have they should have overruled them and and gone in and, and done something about this
1: well i think that's another interesting point that you you disobey that order?
0: Yeah, was, this is the Uvalde Nuremberg defense. Uh, we were just standing around listening to kids get shot because we were obeying the order from our you know lieutenant or whoever it was on the scene. That's insane.
1: I think so too.
0: Yeah. All right, moving on to the next subject. Um, Amber Phillips, Washington Post, has an interesting novel theory about the history of the Second Amendment, which seems to be completely made up, like so much of what we hear in the gun control debate lately. You know, last week it was my turn to beat on uh, Saul Cornell over at Slate for simply making stuff up um, as evidence for the gun control case. Now you having the same issue with the uh, Washington Post.
1: Yes, unfortunately it's not new. In fact, it's fairly widely promulgated by the press, but it is false and cynical and dishonest. I'll quote from this piece, if I may. The interpretation that the Second Amendment extends to individuals' rights to own guns only became mainstream in 2008. When the Supreme Court ruled in a landmark gun case, District of Columbia versus Heller, that Americans have a constitutional right to own guns in their homes, knocking down the district's handgun ban?
0: Uh, no. <laughs> no, that seems to be completely uh, made up. Now, I. I don't know this this writer, so um, I don't know if she's got a lot of experience on this issue or whatnot, but she does work for the Washington Post, so I think it's fair to to hold her to some kind of journalistic standard. I mean, this is something that you can only write if you are either actively dishonest or pristinely ignorant of the subject matter.
1: Yeah, or ignorant and willing to be used by dishonest people, which I think is probably what happened here.
0: Yeah, it would be one thing to say, well, I, I think that as a matter of good public policy or the national interest or whatever, um, that the Supreme Court should have decided Heller in a different way. Um, but to say, well, this is just something that was invented in 2008 by the Supreme Court in the Heller case is just bananas. This is hundreds of years old.
1: So oddly enough, this doesn't work. It doesn't convince a majority of the public. It doesn't convince really... Anyone that it needs to convince, but it has taken hold in the press and in certain more elite circles. And it's a lie. It's not a different view, it's a lie. I've now seen this suggested by a whole host of people in prominent positions that Justice Scalia invented the individual right to keep and bear arms in 2008. I don't care what your view of guns is. I honestly don't. I used to be against the Second Amendment myself. I used to be in favor of much more gun control myself. Many of my friends maintain those positions. Most of my family does. I have uh, res- respect for it, even though I profoundly disagree. But don't lie about the law. That's a sin. And don't lie about history. So, for a start, what she says in this piece is disproven by the Gallup poll that was taken three months before Heller in March of 2008, which showed that 73% of Americans thought that the Second Amendment protected an individual right. A majority of non-gun owners thought that the Second Amendment protected an individual right. So the idea that this was some fantasy, this was some
0: alteration... Non-mainstream position.
1: ...is... belied by the fact that it was the position that was held by a supermajority of American citizens, a supermajority that could pass constitutional amendments if it wished. Yeah, The percentage of Americans who in 2008 thought that the Second Amendment protected some collective right, whatever that is, was 20%. That's not the mainstream. Now, I have probably done this on this podcast before, so I'll try and keep this shorter than usual, but you can go back to any point in American history and find that the notion that individuals have a right to keep and bear arms is mainstream. It is true that for a short period in the middle of the 20th century, legal academics decided that it was either meaningless or that it protected what they call a collective right. But it's not true that the public did, and it's not true that there was ever any evidence whatsoever for that proposition. The ACLU's position in 1975 was that it meant nothing, quite literally, that it was meaningless, that it was inexplicable. But this has never been true. It wasn't true in 1982 when the Senate investigated the question and found that there was no evidence for its being anything other than an individual right. It wasn't true in 1960 when Hubert Humphrey, that great liberal lion, was telling people that the Second Amendment was the last defense against tyranny, which he thought unlikely to come to America, but possible. It wasn't true in the late 19th century in legal textbooks explaining that the people were to be armed and the militia, if it existed, would be drawn from them. It wasn't true at the time of the founding. It wasn't true in 45 of the 50 states. Put state-level constitutional rights to keep and bear arms in their constitutions, which, of course, they wouldn't have done if Antonin Scalia had invented this in 2008. It wasn't true when Americans... For most of their history, could buy guns in the hardware store. There is nothing <laughs> there is nothing in the record to suggest this and and when you drill down on the concept of a collective right, it makes even less sense. The Bill of Rights is full of individual rights, many of which refer to the people. The people is held in that context to mean individuals. So we're supposed to believe that this one is different, but this one refers to the government. Or if we take the dissents in Heller at face value, we're supposed to believe that you, Kevin Williamson, have an individual right to join a state-run organization over which the federal government has full control and can exclude you. (laughs) Why? Why on earth would that be in there?
0: Yeah, well, I think the answer here is that um, it also wasn't a crazy idea in the late 1980s when Sanford Levinson wrote that famous article, uh, "The Embarrassing Second Amendment," and uh, the Yale Law Review was it, I guess. That's right. And uh, for those of you who don't know, you know, this is a guy who went into it sort of like you did, actually. Um, Very much so, with the with the view that um, this was, you know, some ill advised uh, gun culture stuff, and that there wasn't much. Um, real historical legal support for it and dug into it and decided to know the second amendment it actually says pretty much what it says. And what we've always understood it to say, which is that it protects an individual right to keep and bear arms for the purposes of militia service as, um, as expanded, right. There, expanded right there in the, in the second amendment. I think that, um, we shouldn't, we shouldn't make up uh, character defects to assign to our political rivals. Um, I think that's, that's, that's the wrong way of going about things. But we shouldn't underestimate the extent that this is really driven by political cowardice, which is that these people know what the Second Amendment says. They know it's there. They wish it weren't. Um, they think that they don't have the political ability to get it repealed, which they don't. And so, therefore, they're trying to come up with some weird pretextual Uh, nonsensical legal argument that magic's the Second Amendment away.
1: I think that's right, but I have to say, I am just deeply, deeply irritated by the slightly less intelligent and self-aware people that this convinces, Yeah, who seem to populate newsrooms and universities and the middle management rooms in corporations, and who have just bought without any knowledge whatsoever of the issue, this idea that because the word militia appears in the Second Amendment, that it is (laughs) what they call a collective right. What the hell is a collective right? (laughs) Yeah, something we don't really
0: have anywhere else in the the Bill of Rights.
1: You know, when James Madison proposed the Second Amendment, which was originally the Fourth Amendment, the first was originally the third, he didn't know. What was
0: originally the first? It
1: was... Oh, it was to do with... Um, Courting your troops? No, I think it was My to favorite. do with, with the house. The size of the house? I'd need to look it up. The first two got right. knocked out. Yeah, One of them came back as the 27th. Well, anyway, the... When Madison first proposes it, he doesn't see this as being put into this self-contained unit that we now call the Bill of Rights and he wasn't sure as no one was sure whether or not the Bill of Rights would be added subsequent to the constitution and thereby held to amend its existing text or whether they would essentially cross out the existing text or insert the new provisions into the existing text. Uh, He didn't know, for example, that when it came to prohibition, we would have both the 19th, uh, sorry, the the, uh, 18th and the 21st, that they would both be in the Constitution, and that we would say the 21st supersedes the 18th. Of course, he didn't know that because it happened long after, but he didn't know how the construction would work. And so he originally talks about where these provisions are going to be placed in the existing document. And when discussing the Second Amendment, he suggests that it be placed next to the handful of individual rights that were in the unamended constitution. One of them, for example, being habeas corpus. I mean, habeas corpus could have been put into the Bill of Rights, but it was already in there in the original constitution, in a section that deals with individual rights. He didn't suggest that it be put into the Militia clause of the unamended Constitution. Why? Because he and everyone else, and all of the documents from the time, and all of the legal analyses from the time, and all the letters from the time, and all the debates from the time underscore this. Because he recognised that it was an individual right.
0: Yeah. yeah. This makes me crazy, Kevin. <laughs> yeah, you know it's um, it's 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 irritating how quick um. Dumb stuff can spread to people who just want to believe it, including people who aren't dumb, and sometimes to people who aren't even, you know, sort of malicious. Um, so, you know, I was at the NRA convention um, last week, and Garrity was there there too. We were two National Review correspondents there, so we had it we had it covered. Um, and I kept seeing, you know, on social media, and sometimes hearing from people I know. Well, isn't it funny the National Review or the National Rifle Association uh, prohibits? handguns or firearms from the place where it's meetings happening, which just isn't true. No. Um, there are people walking around with guns on their hips. I was carrying a gun. Um, there was a room where they were doing a uh, speech by the president of the former president, Donald Trump um, that was under the control of the secret service, which they weren't letting guns in there. But um, there are even people who want to treat that as a kind of hypocrisy as though, you know, the NRA, uh, who God knows I've got my complaints with, or other gun rights advocates, haven't always pretty well accepted time and place restrictions on handguns and other kinds of guns too. I think most of us are okay with the fact that you can't take a, a firearm onto an airplane or into a school.
1: Well, I mean, we, we do this every year. And as you say, there's two problems with this. The first problem is that the, the NRA... Doesn't bar guns from its convention, as you say. It just respects the rules that are set by the owner of the venues and it is superseded by the law when it comes to the Secret Service. Um, but the second thing is that uh, it's not just time and place. And I am a supporter of time and place restrictions on firearms. And I always point out that just as there are certain time and place restrictions on speech that pass constitutional mustard, there are with guns too. And if you go back to the founding, you will find state constitutions barring individuals from carrying arms at polling places, for example, right back in the late uh, 18th century. Um, But it's not just that. It's also that the rationale for concealed carry goes away in a completely controlled environment full of armed cops. I mean, the, the, the case for concealed carry, which I support, is, look, If there is a bad person who wishes to do a lot of harm in a Denny's, it is better that one of the people that he wishes to harm is armed than not. But if the Denny's is full of secret service agents and there is a metal detector at the door and everyone inside can be pretty much guaranteed not to be armed, that's okay too. You know, I don't see a great need to introduce firearms into, say, the Jacksonville Jaguars Stadium. But I do think there's a strong case for permitting firearms in Target.
0: You know, I've got to take issue with your example there, because I've never seen a Denny's, A, that was full of Secret Service agents, or B, that had a metal detector. You should have said a strip club. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Which apparently were often full of Secret Service agents.
1: But yeah, so this is a bit of a misunderstanding as to the case made in favor of... In favor of carry, it's not that in every single circumstance it makes sense. It's that where you can't provide a controlled environment, it doesn't make a great deal of sense to limit the right to keep and bear arms to people who are, <laughs> bear you ill will.
0: Yeah. Also, you know, in a more general sense, people just think hypocrisy is more important than it actually is. And they think that it's a devastating retort to a political disagreement. Um, Yeah, hypocrisy matters some, but even if there's real hypocrisy among some, you know, officeholder organization or something like that, that doesn't tell you anything about whether the underlying policy is actually a good idea or not. You know, you can uh, beat on Boris Johnson for uh, uh, having uh, illegal or uh, improper uh, parties while the rest of the UK was in COVID lockdown, but that doesn't tell you anything about whether the policies were themselves wise and prudent or not
1: no it doesn't it does tell you yeah. something about the person though and i think that's why people go after it so vehemently because they yeah. want to discourage
0: i don't think in the case of boris johnson that tells anybody anything they didn't already know no of course but they want to
1: <laughs> prevent him from being
0: prime minister that's why yeah they do it. yeah but yeah foolish uh foolish stuff well we promised a third part on uh price inflation should we move on to the economy real quick before we uh, close it up for the week
1: yeah so joe biden is sending out all sorts of signals that he is getting serious about inflation but he's really from my perspective not getting serious Mm -hmm. about inflation because nothing that he's proposing would help and some of what he's proposing would
0: hurt such as sending a whole bunch of young people ten thousand dollars they are sure to immediately spend
1: yeah I mean this, this policy, which I'm sure we'll talk more about next time, maybe. This policy was sold explicitly in twenty nineteen as a stimulus. And Elizabeth Warren is on we're camera. Talking about,
0: we're talking about student loan forgiveness here for those of you who are right. and, um, and
1: And and this is this is my big problem with the guy. He's not serious. On the one hand, he wants us to believe that the marginal effect of his using the Strategic Petroleum Reserve demonstrates that he's serious about inflation. But on the other hand, he wants to give $10,000 of taxpayers' money to anyone who went to college and hasn't paid their loans off yet, up to $300,000 in household income. And then he has the temerity to have his people say, well, I don't think it will be that inflationary. Right, so the scorecard here is tiny, meaningless changes to the Strategic Petroleum Reserve schedule versus giving $10,000 in student loan forgiveness, i.e. transference, to wealthy people. Come on. You can write all the Wall Street Journal articles you like, but it's clear what he actually prioritizes.
0: Yeah. Uh you actually have a complete side issue here, but um, just made me think of something. I, I read that Wall Street Journal article, and of course it's an article that does not live up to the editorial standards of the Wall Street Journal. Um, how much room would you as an editor cut elected officials for that sort of thing? You know, I think about the infamous case of the New York Times having a fit after publishing a Tom Cotton piece, which was perfectly fine. Um, you know, National Review, we publish a lot of Elected officials, and I'm glad we do. I think it's important to provide that kind of a forum. But they often write stuff that we wouldn't publish if it weren't by an elected official. Like if it was some, you know, sophomore at Yale, we'd send it back and say, "Try again."
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question. I, I think it's important that politicians get their message out. I I think that National Review is obviously not the only means by which they can do it. So you'd want to be Careful, we are an opinion journal. There's mm-hmm. much more of a case for, say, USA Today publishing a politician. If if they're nervous or if they dissent from the thesis. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't think there's any great harm in the Wall Street Journal doing it because they published it and then they'll have all sorts of criticisms <laughs> within an right, hour. Yeah, I, mean, I don't think there's anything
0: wrong with it necessarily. Although it was kind of actively dishonest in a way that would have made me nervous as an editor even though the author is yeah that's the
1: true that's true i don't know kevin that's an interesting question where Where are you on it
0: um well i've actually mentioned this in, in meetings in national review before that i think it's important that we do this um even when we're publishing uh the work of elected officials that i don't like and that i wish were not elected officials uh in some case, cases. Um, I think that's part of what you do as a a magazine, is you try to provide forums um, for things that are important parts of the public conversation. I think of it a little bit, I guess, the way we think about libel law, which is that, you know, if you're a reporter and you're at the Senate and some senator says something libelous and you report that he said it in your newspaper, you don't get sued for repeating the libel, right? Right. Because— It's important that this gets covered and that the public know what's going on. So I suppose that even though you have to expect a little bit of intellectual dishonesty from almost all politicians and a lot of intellectual dishonesty from some politicians, it's probably important to um, provide them a place to uh, air their views and arguments, even if they're not good ones.
1: And funnily enough, I think in at least the case of Joe Biden, this is unlikely to be a topic we have to wrestle with.
0: Oh, in National Review. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, I was thinking in the case of the the Journal and other publications too. Um, No, I don't think that Biden will probably come to us with the piece. Um, You know, I don't make these decisions at National Review. I'm not involved in that process. Although I have to imagine that uh, if he did and it were interesting, we'd probably use it, wouldn't we? Uh, I don't know. I would want us to. Yeah, I'd I'd probably Uh, want... Want if Biden to... had something that he wanted to say to the audience of National Review, if it was, you know, if he came to us and said, here's why conservatives should think differently about inflation or guns or something like that, you know, specifically kind of addressing our audience. Even if I thought it was bad and crazy, I'd probably want to have it.
1: Yeah, I mean, another option would be that he wanted assist a soldier a moment. I know that's overused, but he needs one. Mm. And that he wanted to say it where we are.
0: Yeah, I think those moments are a thing of the past. Everyone is into the rally the base mode rather yeah. than reach out to the middle mode. Yeah,
1: probably. Although that may change over time.
0: Yeah. So, are you noticing? Uh, are you noticing the bite of inflation in the cook household finances? Sure. Where do Especially you see it most? Especially gas. Yeah, certainly.
1: Gas, food, milk.
0: Yeah. Eggs. I have a jeep, so. I spent a lot of money. on gas. Well, we have a Ford Explorer, so yeah, yeah, it's a big car. That's true. That's true. I wouldn't change it. No. Friend of mine just bought some gigantic. Um, I guess Expedition. That's the an
1: even uh, bigger one.
0: Yeah, it's a uh, humongous, and uh, right before you know all this stuff started happening and all the prices started going up, so I think he's um, starting to feel that the bite of that a little bit.
1: but so the Expedition is so big that it won't actually fit in my garage. <laughs>
0: Nice. But, yeah, you notice it certainly like at Whole Foods and at the uh, gas station, I suppose, a few other places where it's really uh, become noticeable. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so we got an Explorer because the Expedition is too big, and I think the Ford F-150 is too big, too.
0: Ah, uh, I kind of want one of those. those are, They're great. Those
1: are great. They're really great. There's a lot of them around where I live.
0: Really? hmm What do people use them for just because they like them, or are people hauling stuff around for their gardens? or? Obviously, it's not for the four-wheel drive capability and the tough Florida weather.
1: No, <laughs> getting well... Those,
0: getting through those I mean, a January lot of people, blizzards there in Jacksonville. No,
1: but, I mean, yeah, people move things in them, and um, they fishing gear, I guess, and they also... I mean, a lot of people use them for work. Yeah. Roofing, plumbing, uh, sprinkler systems.
0: Yeah, I used to say that when I lived in Houston, I was going to rob a bank and my getaway car was going to be a white uh, Chevy Silverado pickup truck because every second car on the street in Houston is yeah, a white Chevy Silverado in. that's being used by, you know, a landscaping crew or a contractor or a roofer or, or uh, something like that. It's, uh, it's pretty good camouflage. <laughs> Anything else we should talk about before we call it a Wednesday?
1: No, except that you've now given away ahead of time to the police your getaway plan. So I think it will now be less effective.
0: Yeah, I know the the Houston police. I like my chances.